So I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling the gospel in advance. The scriptures declare that we already possess, we already have everything that pertains to life and godliness. If I was to stop right there, I would say that's a good message. Just to know that I already possess, I already have living on the inside of me, everything that pertains to life and godliness. So the question is, where did we get this life and godliness? Well, we got it from the Lamb of God. And when did the Lamb of God give us these wonderful gifts of life and godliness and everything that pertains to it? When did he give us that? Well, you have to ask the question, when was the Lamb of God slain? He was slain, the Bible says, before the foundation of the world. That means everything that I just spoke about, including the gospel, was given to us in advance. Sometimes we fall for the deception. We fall for the charade that the enemy puts on us, and, and religion will teach this too, that we've got to pull everything out of the heavens. Friends, let me tell you something. Heaven lives on the inside of you. The scripture says that we have everything that pertains to life and godliness. I mentioned when we opened the service that we went on a mission trip three and a half years ago to Nicaragua, my wife and I. And as we were minding our own business, in a sense, walking in the schoolyard with the dirt floor, a mother brought a little girl up to us, a four-year-old girl, and through an interpreter, she told us that her little girl was blind in one eye. She could not see. She has not seen from birth in that one eye. Friends, let me tell you something. The Spirit just said, just kneel down. Don't stand above her and frighten her. Get down on her level. And so I did. I got down on my knees like this, and she was about my height, maybe a little bit shorter still. And all I did was lay hands on that little girl and prayed for her and believed. And somehow that little girl was believing just as great as I was, if not greater, faith of a child, you know how it goes. And that little girl literally extracted the heaven right out of me. I didn't look up to heaven and say, oh God, send out of heaven. No, heaven was on the inside of me. We need to understand that. You have everything. There is no deficit in a child of God. We have everything. Underscore that in your heart this morning. Everything that pertains to life and godliness. Yet we chase like crazy men and women different things. And listen, the realm of heaven lives in me. Jesus lives in me. God lives in me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. And he's deposited in me everything, in you, everything that pertains to life. Well, that was part of life right there. I could have never have seen that happen. 
And there were even some even greater miracles, not necessarily in scope, but in power that happened later that week as we continue to minister to people. We have everything on the inside of us. God did deposit 99 and 44, 100% pure love inside of us. I know there's an old country song that was written about that one time. No, because then that means he still needs to add that somewhere along it. No, he gave us all of his love. He gave us all of his peace. He gave us all of his joy. He gave us all of his grace. He gave us all of his anointing. He gave us all of his power. Now, I'll agree with you. There's some things that can get in the way and seem to stop all that stuff up. I agree with you. Condemnation's one of them. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. You can't hardly get out of bed in the morning with condemnation running loose on you. That's paralyzing. Fear's another one. Shame's another one. Guilt's another one. Worry's another one. There's these, I call them parasites, barnacles, culprits, whatever you want to call them. There's these things that want to hang on a resurrected heart of ours, and it wants to get in the way of us believing that we already have everything that pertains to life and godliness. Valerie and I happened to stop at a store to get a drink on the way here, and the man just saw the way we were dressed, I guess, and he said, uh, if you're on your way to church, pray for me, please, when you get there. He said, I got to work today. And I could tell just by the way he was dressed, he was in construction. I said, you're in construction, aren't you? And he said, yeah. I said, it's okay to do what you're doing. Believe me, I said, daddy will talk to you on the job just as much as he'll talk to me in a church. I don't think that encouraged the man. But I said, we will pray for you, and we did. We have everything living on the inside of us that pertains to life and godliness. We need confidence. We need boldness. The Bible says we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. The throne of grace, not the throne of pressure, not the throne of condemnation, the throne of grace with boldness. Why? Because we know our Father sits on the throne, our Jesus sits on the throne, and he loves us with all of his heart. Why would we not approach that with boldness? We can approach with boldness where we find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. We're needy people, man, I'm telling you. We're needy people. I'm telling you what, you'll be less needy when you come to the revelation and when you get it in your heart that he has already deposited on the inside of us everything that pertains to life and godliness. You'll be less needy. I have my days too, I get it. But I don't walk around feeling needy all the time. In fact, most of my prayer, I would say 95% of the time I pray, it's not about even asking God for stuff and to do this and that. It's just about worshiping Him. Amen. It's just about loving Him. It's just about talking to Papa. I was sitting in the chair this morning. I got up at 4 o'clock and was sitting in the chair, and I clearly heard my name spoken by Him. And then He went on to say some things. It was so beautiful. But all of a sudden, in the quietness of my living room, I heard, Mark. And I'm like, hey, Papa. And uh, I said, if you're going to call my name, you want to talk to me, don't you? And he said some really sweet things to me this morning to encourage me. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, we find these words. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Now look how it comes through our knowledge of him. Let's not rush this point. Through our knowledge of 
him or as we grow in knowledge of him, we become aware that we have everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness through our knowledge of him. Now watch what it says, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Friends, you did not call yourself and you don't continue to call yourself. God called you by his own glory and goodness. He called us by his glory and goodness. Through these, these what? Through the glory and the goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And then he says, For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities, or if you possess these virtues, in increasing measure, now again, when God makes a deposit, that deposit is not necessarily growing in quantity, but it grows as we increase in the revelation that is there, as we increase in the awareness that he is there, as we increase, the Bible says, in measure of knowing that I'm held together by his love, I'm held together by his glory, I'm held together by his goodness. And he says, these virtues will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so important. Look at these last words in verse 9. He says, but whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind. Now he's talking to believers. Who does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Do you see what he tied all that to? He's going on through a list of virtues, and he says those virtues should be increasing in measure in your life. You should be increasing in your capacity to love and your desire to love. You should be increasing in self-control. You should be increasing in perseverance. All of these virtues, he said, but I'm going to show you what a lot of that's tied to. He says, it's when you forget that you have been cleansed from your past sins. He said, they will not manifest in your life. Why? Because when you forget that insurmountable truth, what happens is condemnation will reign. When you realize that God has done away with your sin, God has taken away your sin, condemnation cannot reign there. It cannot reign. It is a defeated foe. It is an enemy. Condemnation is an enemy. In John 10, 10, where it says, the thief cometh not but for to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said that I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. We always pin that word thief on the devil. That word thief is not the word used for the devil, friends. A thief is anything that steals from you. Listen, if someone broke into your house tonight, wouldn't you say some thief broke into my house? Would you tell the cop when they come, you know what, the devil broke in my house last night. No, you say, man, a thief broke in my home last night. 
A thief is anyone that comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come to give you life. The same kind of life that he says you already have. You have everything, he says, that pertains to life. Same word, life and godliness in this world. But when we forget that we've been cleansed from our past sins, why? Because sin keeps showing up in our lives, and we go, oh, there I go. Your sin is in your past. You say, well, what about the sin I just sinned two minutes ago? Is two minutes ago in your past? (laughs) Yeah. Well, what about the sin I just sinned just now? Well, is just now also now in your past? Everything is past. I mean, you can't stop time. He said, you need to forget about this sin. It's not a deal with me. I've done away with it. I have taken your sin away. I have removed it. As far as the east is from the west, I have cast your sin into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be brought up again. Beautiful, wonderful scriptures. We must understand that he has given us the gospel in advance. Through the gospel, our sins are remembered no more. They have been forgotten by God. Through the gospel, through the good news, we become effective, we become productive, living lives through the knowledge of his glory and his goodness and his grace and his love for us. Wonderful. Now, the English word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion. The Greek word euangelion is actually made from two words, you, E-U, which means good, and angelion, which means message. That is exactly what the word gospel means. And I'm telling you today that the good message was with God in the beginning. The good message was with him. The word gospel shows up 104 times in the Bible. And due to the fact that the word gospel does not appear until the New Testament, many people are led to believe that the gospel was some sort of afterthought with Papa, that it was some sort of plan B, that the law didn't work, so God brought the gospel. No, the gospel was with him in the beginning. And let me tell you something about the law. The law does work. But the problem is, is it works perfectly and we don't. That's the problem with it, okay? For 15 years of my life, from 1979 to about 1994, maybe a little bit longer than that, I was the repo man. I was the account manager. If you didn't pay your rent-to-own bill, I would be at your door knocking on it, or I'd be calling you on the phone. And I would have people over time get offended by that. They would say, why are you calling me? Why did you come to my house? And I would say, because you're late on your payment. He said, well, I'm offended that you're here. I said, well, I can tell you how we can resolve this. Just don't ever be late again. My job is to collect payments. I will never come to your house and tell you you're on time. That's not my job. And the law's job was never to pat you on the back and tell you, good old boy, good job. You've been obeying the law just great for a long time. That is not the law's position. The law's position is to take 613 bony fingers and put them in your face when you fail and call you a failure. Yet the word declares that the law is holy and good and righteous and perfect. True. But man was not. So 
the gospel is not some sort of plan B, the law didn't work. No, the law worked just right. It condemned you when you failed. It said, hey, you missed a payment. Hey, <laughs> you're past due. That's what the law's job was to do. Some people think the gospel didn't come until Jesus came. Well, friends, that could not be farther from the truth. The gospel or the good news has been with God from the beginning of time. In the book of Genesis, we meet a man by the name of Abram. Look at his name. <laughs> I love the look of those Hebrew letters. Hebrew always reads from right to left. I want you to make note that Abram has four letters in his name. Aleph, Bet, Resh, Mem. Abram. That's his name. Abram. Abram. That's his name. And he had that name for a lot of years. And I'm sure he felt like it fit him just perfect. But then daddy came along. And daddy said, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham, Abraham. To do so, God had to add one letter to his name. Aleph, Bet, Resh, Che, Mem. Abraham. God added that one letter, just one letter to his name. Now you have to ask yourself the question, why would God add a letter to somebody's name? Friends, this is not the wheel of fortune wheel where you just spin it and see which letter it ends up on. No, God was very intentional about this. He added the che to his name. As I was thinking about that yesterday, I thought, did you not like his name? Did you feel like Abraham sounded better than Abram? Friends, let me tell you something. God had more in mind than just adding a letter to his name, more in mind than just changing his name. I heard Steve say it. God doesn't change. True. Malachi chapter 3, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. He does say that. But God does love change. He loves variety. He doesn't change in terms of his virtues. And whatever we see happen had been planned from the beginning of time. God loves change. Why do you think we have four seasons? Winter, spring, summer, and fall. God loves change. <laughs> he does. We have morning and we have evening. God loves change. We have seed time and harvest. The plant that grows up, the crop that grows up looks nothing like the seed. It's went through a metamorphosis. It's went through a change. It's become much more robust. The seed would do almost nothing for you, yet that plant can bear fruit or it can bear vegetables for you. Jesus' first miracle was changing water into wine. He changed water to wine. One of the emphasis of this ministry is to get us away from the mentality of servant and think more like son. God loves that change too. When we move from the mentality of servant, I just get to serve God. I understand. I've said that a million times in my life and once in a while it will still slip out. My identity is not servant. 
I'm a son who serves, but I'm not a servant of God. I am a son of God. And I had to go through a change in my mind to see that, but I saw it in the scriptures first. And I said, that's what you say? Then that's what I say. As he is, so are we. As what he says, so do I. God changes sinner to saint. That's one of the greatest miracles that he does. God changed the old covenant and brought in the new covenant. In other words, he said, listen, this is a lot of work. And I knew it was going to be, but this is what you asked for. This is what you begged for. You said you didn't want to talk to me. You said you wanted a bunch of rules you could follow. I said, no. Moses said, give it to him, God. And you got it. And it lasted for thousands of years. But I knew that was going to happen in the beginning. It didn't take me by surprise. You see, it wasn't just about a name change with Abram. It was about an identity change. That's what God was getting at. I want to change your identity. And I think that's probably one of the biggest reasons people have name changes to begin with is they're not happy with something about their identity. They're not happy about something, so they want to change it. And God said, it's about identity. The question would probably be better asked like this. What letter did God add to Abram's name to make him Abraham? Again, it was the Hebrew letter He. It is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Bet, Gamel, Dalet, He. The number five always represents grace. In the Hebrew, five always signifies grace. And so when God looked at 22 Hebrew letters, I'm just being a little facetious here, but when he looked at 22 Hebrew letters, that's what they've got, there was nothing random about the selection of that letter. He reached down there and he grabbed that and said, there you go, Abraham. Now we put grace right in the middle of you. You see that? <laughs> put the grace right in there. Look at that H. Hey is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It always represents grace. Another way to say this is God added grace to Abram and changed his identity to Abraham. Grace will always change your identity. And God did the very same thing for Abraham's wife. Her name, we call her Sarai. In the Hebrew, it's actually Sari. Sari, but he changed her name by adding the letter he to the end to make her Sarah. We say Sarah. He did the very same thing to Abraham's wife. He changed her name by adding that one Hebrew letter. Now, the Hebrew letter he literally means to look. It means to behold. It means to draw one's attention to. That's what the definition of that letter is. It means to look. It means to behold. It means to draw one's attention to. And I find it very interesting because even in the English vernacular, when we want to get somebody's attention, what do we do? We say, hey, hey, I'm over here. Hey, look at that. I don't think that's just a coincidence that that happens to be referencing the same definition. Now, 
I want you to take a ribbon in your mind and put it there for a second. And let's move all the way over into the New Testament. And we find a man by the name of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is standing in the muddy Jordan River baptizing people for the remission of sins. And then he looks up one day and he sees Jesus walking toward him. Oh, what a sight. Oh, how beautiful. That's his cousin. And if he'd have been prideful, he'd have said, excuse me, just a minute. This is my cousin coming. Hey, hey cousin, come on down here. No. John has been waiting, whether he knows it or not, to introduce the gospel, the man who represents the gospel in advance. And what is the first word that he'll use? It's behold. Look, behold, I want to draw your attention to the Lamb of God. And I don't only want to tell you who he is, I want to tell you why he came. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Passionate about that. He was talking to not only the people that were standing there, oh, but he went over into the religious crowd because they heard him too, the scribes and the Pharisees that were standing there. He was saying, I want to draw your attention to the man who's responsible for the gospel in advance to the one that was with God in the beginning. And that's why as we move over into John chapter 1, these scriptures begin to make sense. This is not John the Baptist, this is the Apostle John, but he said these words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. When John the Baptist cried out from the Jordan River, he was not only saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he was literally saying, grace! Remember, look, behold, let me draw your attention. He was saying, grace through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist's first words would draw our hearts and our attentions back to the covenant God made with Abraham, a covenant that was accessed by grace through faith. Friends, that's the good message and that's the gospel in advance. So, with the rising of each new day, I want to challenge you to set your hearts on the gospel in advance that all of your sins have been taken away, that God has changed your water into wine, that the grace of the Father, Jesus Christ, and the precious Holy Spirit are flowing through you like a spiritual umbilical cord, a cord that can never be severed a cord that continually carries away waste product, right? That's what umbilical cords do. And what are our waste products? You hear me talk about them all the time. Condemnation, let's carry it away through that spiritual umbilical cord. Guilt, let's carry it away. Shame, let's carry it away. Fear, let's carry it away. I'm gonna tell you what, you get rid of those four culprits, you'll walk so freely, you'll feel like you weigh 100 pounds less than you weigh right now. It's a cord that continually carries away our waste products. You see, under the Old Covenant, the Bible declares that a three-strand cord was not easily broken. That's what it says. It says it's not easily broken. Well, friends, I'm telling you a three-stranded cord with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is never broken. It's never broken. The New Covenant of plan of salvation, what we have today is patterned after Abraham's covenant 
Abram simply believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We see that truth, Romans chapter 4, verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What did Abram do? He believed God. What else did he do? He believed God. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, same thing. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. James chapter 2, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Here you have two giants of the Bible, the apostle Paul and James, saying the very same thing, using the almost word for word, so you got to ask yourselves, where did they get that at? They obviously didn't just make that up on their own because they're saying the exact same thing. There's got to be an origin to this somewhere. Where'd this all start at? Where'd it come from? Well, <laughs> Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So both of these New Testament writers reached all the way back into Genesis and said, that makes sense. In light of the new covenant, that makes sense right there. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Abraham remain perfect in all of his conduct, in all of his ways after he believed God? No, he didn't. So let me ask the second part of the question. Can you show me a scripture where Abraham's righteousness was ever taken away, where it was ever undone, where he was ever considered unrighteous before God ever again. You can't find that scripture for me because it's not there. Why is that important for us to know? Because even though our own actions may not be perfect, even though we get wrongheaded and we get wayward deeded at times, they will never make us unrighteous ever again. Why? Because we believe God and we experience righteousness. Now, if that worked back in Genesis, friends, it works today. I want you to make note that in all those scripture references that I just gave you, that it was only credited to Abram as righteousness. Today, believers are made the righteousness of God in Christ. Look at the scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, one of my favorites. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Righteousness is not credited to us. We are made the righteousness of God in Christ. We become one with righteousness. Righteousness was on a person in a sense in the Old Covenant or even in the Old Testament in Abraham's days. But righteousness today is in us. We have been imputed righteousness. We are infused with righteousness. We are righteousness in and out. We cannot separate ourselves from this righteousness. Now, let me ask you something. Is it a reasonable statement to say that a baby inside of his mother's womb does nothing to contribute to his or her own identity. Is that a reasonable statement? In other words, does the baby pick out his own eye color? 
No. Does the baby determine whether he has curly hair or straight hair? No. Does he determine where his freckles and moles are located? No. Does he determine if he's left-handed or right-handed? No. He makes no contribution. The baby gets his or her identity from his parents. Furthermore, while every baby is in the womb, that baby is affected by his mother's actions. Would you agree with that? In other words, if the mother decides to have a little toddy for the body, the baby will have a toddy for the body. If the mother drinks alcohol, the baby drinks alcohol. If the mother does drugs and gets high, the baby will get high. If the mother smokes a cigarette, the baby will smoke a cigarette. If the mother eats a Big Mac, the baby will eat a Big Mac. Why? Because everything is being provided for that baby from mama. Everything's being provided. The umbilical cord is impartial. So if you put in good, good will come through it. If you put in bad, bad will come through it. It is impartial. And because we're in Christ and there is no darkness in him, there is no shadow of turning in him, there is only light and love and purity in God. That's the only thing that can flow through him. We are connected to him through a spiritual umbilical cord. Friends, when we were made one with Christ, there was a spiritual umbilical cord that was attached between us and Jesus that constantly supplies grace, constantly supplies righteousness, constantly supplies holiness, constantly supplies glory and goodness and love and grace to flow inside of us. I find it interesting that there are three blood vessels inside of the umbilical cord, two arteries and a vein. And what do they do? They supply rich oxygenated blood and the umbilical cord carries away waste. That's exactly the way I see when I think about my Father, my Jesus, my sweet Holy Spirit. They are supplying me with everything I need for life and godliness and they are taking away everything that is hurtful for me. They have carried it away. John the Baptist's message was, Behold, look, hey, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was literally saying, Gospel, good message, grace, who takes away the sin of the world. In Romans chapter 11, verses 17 and 18, we find these words. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree some of the Jews have been broken off. And you Gentiles who were branches from, we might say a wild olive tree, have been grafted in. So now you too receive the blessing God promised Abraham and his children, sharing in God's rich nourishment of his own special olive tree. But you must be careful not to brag about being put into replace the branches that were broken off Remember that you are important only because you are now a part of God's tree. You are just a branch, not a root. Do you notice it says you must be careful not to brag? Exactly the same kind of words it uses in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man can brag, so that no man can boast. It ties it all back into 
This is his work. This is his handiwork. Even in verse 10, it says, For you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So how did we become a branch in the root? We're a branch. Jesus is the root of David. We're a branch. God is a root. How did we become attached to the root? <laughs> Friends, it's by faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. By faith. We believed God. Your experience may be different than mine, but I'm telling you, we all believe God at one point in time. Now, I want to show you a picture that this is just the way Daddy talked to me. Between each of the boxcars of a train is something called a knuckle. The purpose of the knuckle is to connect one boxcar to another. Our faith is like that knuckle. Faith connects us to the righteousness of God in Christ. Faith does not make us righteous. Jesus makes us righteous. The umbilical cord that is attached between mother and baby is not what made the baby. The umbilical cord didn't say, let's make a baby. No, the umbilical cord attaches the child to the one that made the baby. Make sense? Likewise with the Holy Spirit, he connects believers to the Father through this, I keep calling it, this spiritual umbilical cord called faith. The difference between credited as righteous and being made the righteousness of God in Christ is the cross. That's the difference. But it's always been daddy's plan from the very beginning of time. A natural umbilical cord is cut shortly after birth within 60 seconds usually. God's umbilical cord is never severed and continuously supplies the righteousness the son or the daughter needs while simultaneously taking away that man or that woman's waste products. Condemnation, fear, shame, guilt. Friends, that's what Jesus did for us. He gave us, again, his rich oxygenated blood. He gave us his righteousness and he carried away our waste that we call sin. Our sin was taken away. Now, Abraham was born about 500 years before the law was introduced to Moses, through Moses, should I say. He was born about 500 years, so he lived a long time before Moses. Abraham had a relationship with God. Why? Because he believed God, because he trusted him. Abraham had long been dead hundreds of years before the Mosaic law was introduced but here's the cool thing. The law did not change Abraham's covenant of promise through faith. We see that truth in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 17. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He says, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later. What does he mean by 430 years later? 430 years after Abraham received his promise. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, the covenant with Abraham, and thus do away with the promise. So God set this in place with Abraham. The law came, 
but it didn't annul. It didn't do away with Abraham's promise to be made righteous by faith. Our relationship with God is established through faith and trust in God also. In fact, the word believe in the New Testament literally means to put your trust in. I love that. When we hear the word believe, it means to put your trust in. That's why John 3.16 is so much of a powerhouse of a statement. It literally says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth or whosoever puts their trust in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The word everlasting behind that Greek word is actually the word eternal. King James changed it to everlasting. He probably liked that word better. But there's a difference between everlasting life and eternal life. Everlasting life is life without end. Eternal life is without beginning and end. And God gave us eternal life because why? Because he was there from the beginning. He can only give you what he has. Friends, God has always been good and his message has always been good. In fact, God put the gospel of goodness, we call it the gospel of grace, in effect, even before the Mosaic law was introduced. Through Abraham, he said, I'm going to declare you righteous because you have believed on me. But I want you to see the truth in Galatians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Apostle Paul writes these words. He said, so again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Let's pause for just a moment. Let's, in our heart of hearts, each individual, answer that own question inside your heart there. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because of the law or by works of the law or by believing what you heard? I think you'd have to almost be foolish to say by the works of law because I don't think anybody's on that page in here. So also Abraham, there's those words again, believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. He just drew our hearts all the way back to a covenant he made that says, you know what? I know you're going to fail, but you'll never become unrighteous. I'm going to give you something that predated the law, and I will never, ever go back and have to modify that. It's beautiful, friends. He says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Now, here's the words. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. That's where the inspiration for this message came from. God announced the gospel in advance, look at who he announced it to. Not to the Apostle Paul. And not to Mark Testerman. He reached all the way back and found a man in the very first few chapters of Genesis. And he said, I'm going to announce, I'm going to unleash that gospel right there. Beautiful. He said he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith, this is so important. Those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Friends, 
the gospel was not like some sort of bottle of vintage wine that had been procuring through a molecular transformation over the course of thousands of years to one day be uncorked and served to guests. I don't believe it happened that way. I believe it was there in the beginning. And that may be the very point of Jesus' first miracle as he turned water into wine, demonstrating his authority, an authority that transcends time, it transcends matter, and it transcends space. You see, when Jesus turned water into wine, he didn't need the contribution of time. Wine does. It's got to ferment. It takes a while. When Jesus turned water into wine, he didn't need the contribution of time. When Jesus turned water into wine, he didn't need the presence of grapes. <laughs> you can't make wine, grape wine without grapes. They've got to be present. And Jesus was showing us, listen, I know you've been relying on a lot of physical things, tangible things, but I'm about to show you something that can be done in the spiritual realm. I don't need the help of all these elements. And he doesn't require a man's time. He doesn't require a man's space. He doesn't require a man's matter to make that man the righteousness of God in Christ. He just needs faith. He just requires faith. That's it. He just requires faith. Faith what? Faith in Jesus' finished work. Faith in Christ. Jesus changed the identity of the water when he made it into wine. Isn't that beautiful? I told you he likes change. You see, it was no longer water, and anybody that would have tasted it would say, well, that ain't water, that's wine. He changed the identity of the water into wine. But here's the key, I believe, that bolsters this unique miracle. Jesus waited until their wine ran out. Now, friends, do you wait till you run out of gas to go get more gas? Not usually. I mean, it's happened to me a time or two in my life when I just wasn't paying attention, I guess, or I was broke, one of the two. But you don't wait till you run out of gas to go get gas. I mean, sometimes we get it down there pretty low. So it would make sense if that as they were getting low that Jesus would do all this. But no, the Bible says he waited until they ran out. This is the way the Holy Spirit said to me. It's only when a man comes to the end of himself, when he comes to the end of himself, that he can be changed into the righteousness of God in Christ. As long as you have any fight left in you, I'm telling you, you won't want him. I've told the story before, but I had a friend that was a lifeguard at one time, and he said, man, I'll just let a person almost drown to death before I'll go save him. He said, because if they've got any fight left in them, man, they'll drown me too. And it's true. If you know anything about saving people with lifeguard, man, you, I'm telling you, man, they'll do anything. They'll push you underwater just to keep, and they're not really trying to be mean about it. They're in panic mode. They'll do anything. They'll just climb right up on top of your head. When I was a teenager, my daddy trapped some coons in a live trap one time. We went to train our hound dogs one night. We took them out in the middle of a field. It was dark. We had several guys there. What we should have done is we should have been a little closer to the woods, right? Because when we let the coons out, what our intentions were were to give them about a five, ten minute 
starts. They get over those woods over there, and then we turn the dogs loose and let them practice on tree and coon, you know. <laughs> Second, we let those coons out of the cage. They ran right up on top of a man's head. They're just in survival mode. It was the tallest thing near them. There were no trees. Close enough. I'll get on your head. I'm getting away from these dogs. It actually happened, man. It's only when a man comes to the end of himself that he can be changed into the righteousness of God in Christ. Only when a man receives the revelation that all of his nutrients come through daddy's umbilical cord of grace, only then will that man discover the choice wine. <laughs> that someone saved the best wine for last. All that other stuff was cheap Boone's Farm, but somebody saved the best stuff for last. Choice wine. Cheap wine. No, choice wine. But it's when you come to the end of yourself, and I'm talking not only to unbelievers, but believers that want to be religious and they want to haul around Moses and his teddy bear all the time. And it's until you can come to the end of that and say, I don't want this teddy bear anymore. I'm going to let go of it. Then you'll find at the end of that, choice wine will be waiting for you. You're going to take a drink of the Spirit like you have never had before, and it's going to set you so free, going to set you at such liberty. It's only when a man comes to the end of performance-centered Christianity that he can accept the truth that the gospel in advance, also known as the good message, also known as you Angelon, that he can accept the truth that the gospel does not require our contribution of time. It does not require our contribution of matter. It doesn't require our contribution of space. Faith, it is the knuckle that connects us to the grace of Jesus Christ. And once connected, always connected. Remember, there's no way to sever that knuckle. There's no way to sever that umbilical cord. It stays intact. Why? Jesus said, I have not lost even one of the ones that you have given me. Not one, not even one. We see that miracle of water to wine in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Look at the words. When the wine was gone, in other words, what he's saying is when what you brought to the table was gone. The stuff we bring to the table, friends, our own works is pitiful. It's cheap wine. That's all it is. That's all it is. See, when the wine was gone, the Bible says, Jesus' mother said to him, talking to her son, they have no more wine. It's kind of a comical story. I mean, because mamas just, they're always mamas, right? Once a mama, you're just always a mama. I mean, here's the savior of the world, and she knows it too. And she's trying to tell him, son, they're out of wine. I love his response. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servant, see, that's just like mom too, isn't it? Well, you didn't listen to me. Let me talk to somebody else. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, why are those words important? 
Those words are important because if you study your Bible, you will find that those are the very last words that are recorded by Mary. No other words are written about anything she spoke. Those are her very last words. Do whatever he tells you to do. Sometimes I think we get our instructions from too many things. Flesh, other people, well-meaning ministers. Do what he tells you to do. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And there's typology in all of this stuff. I'll just move along. But Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now, to be filled only with the fruit of the grapevine is carnality. Believers are to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And I'll get back to that wedding feast in just a second here and that water and the wine thing, but let's take a look at what I just said in context, being filled to the brim, essentially, with the fruit of righteousness. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. I want you to hear the context. I want you to hear the heart of the Apostle Paul. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. What is the gospel? Euangelion. What does it mean? Good message. He said, if you're preaching a good message, he said, man, he said, we're partners. You run off and start preaching a message that's not a good message. We're not partners anymore. But he said, that's why I'm celebrating you is because I'm always filled with joy when I think about our partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, friends, I am spending my life right there. I find at times I have to defend the gospel and I find at times I'm confirming it, but I will not back off of it because it's the power of God unto salvation. Sometimes you defend it, sometimes you just confirm it. Some will agree with you, some won't. I'm not an arguing kind of guy, but I tell you what, I won't back down from it, because I know what it's done for my own life. He said, whether I am in chains of defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth. Remember, we talked about knowledge of God earlier. In the knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We are filled with righteousness. We are filled like the water pots to the brim, overflowing with righteousness, spilling out of us righteousness everywhere we go. Why? Because we are pure righteousness. His righteousness lives in us. We were made the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, back to the wedding feast. What has happened? The servants 
have filled the water pots with water. Then Jesus told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Do you see how it's opposite when we think about the covenants? We have a much better covenant today. We have the choice wine today. And that's why Jesus said, man, you can't put new wine in old wineskins, man. You're going to break them. Why? Because it's doing something. It's alive. It's expanding. It's alive and active. He said, if you put new wine in an old wineskin, which was just a goat skin, he said, it's going to burst and then everything's lost. Sometimes I think about that. You know, we're like old wineskins and stuff is dripping into us. And sometimes people just can't handle it, to be honest with you. They can't handle it. Their paradigm has always been serve, 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 serve. I can't see myself as really a son. I'm a dirty worm. No, friends, you're the righteousness of God in Christ. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glories. Look at those last words. And his disciples believed in him. That's what God is looking for. To trust him, to believe in him. He's wanted to communicate something to you and he's wanted, like from Abraham, to just believe him that he's that good. When Abram was, I mean, up there in age and Sarah is barren, she's so old and God is telling him he's going to make him a father of many nations. I mean, how do you really walk away with that going, I believe it. I mean, that voice has to be so real to you. That experience has to be so relational to you that you go, man, that was God that just spoke. He spoke so clearly. And that's what he said. I'm believing him. I'm going to believe him. And the disciples believed in him. Did you notice that the disciples never tried to duplicate that miracle? They simply believed in him. Now, friends, let me tell you something. If a magician would show me a really cool trick, <laughs> I'd be showing it to you before the sunset. I used to do that. I used to love playing little card tricks and stuff like that. And you show me something, and I had to show everybody. And they were just there, and this was the first one. So they're not even used to Jesus doing that. And they just watched him turn water into wine without time, without space, without grapes. How did you do that? I'd have been like, man, teach me that one, Lord. I, I want to do that too. No, they never tried to duplicate it. They just believed in him. Beautiful. We can be set so free just by believing in him that he's good and he's gracious and he's kind and he's merciful and he's all forgiving. And that one sacrifice was sufficient to cleanse me of all unrighteousness forever. Because faith is a knuckle that allows grace to come to us, then the enemies such as fear, guilt, shame, condemnation, you know what they try to do? They try to work to derail the train. See, they already know you're connected. 
So the next best thing is if, if we can just get you off track, if we can just somehow derail you. And that's the kind of stuff that will show up in your life. And what is its purpose? To derail you in a sense, not lose your salvation. That's a finished work. But I'm talking about derail you from having a hope, derail you from having a joy unspeakable and full of glory, derail you from having a passion in life, derail you. Derail you from being good to other people. Derail you from praying for a brother. Derail you. Derail you in believing that God is that good, that somehow he might be withholding something from me. No, he's withholding nothing. He's already deposited on the inside of us everything that pertains to life and godliness. It's already there. We work it from the inside out, not from the heavens down. It's already here. The Bible says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What do you work it out from? Salvation is just life. It's life is what it is. It's all the goodness of God. He's saying work out that life, work out that salvation. Where do you work it out from? The inner man, the spirit. He didn't say pull it out of heaven. He says work it out. I'm telling you all of this virtue is on the inside of us. On the inside of us, man. The last several messages I have been in this book of Galatians because I am telling you, my friends, I don't know of a book that sets you more free about the finished work and about the new covenant than the book of Galatians, in particular chapter 3 and chapter 4. So I've had a heyday. I'll be honest with you. I've just had a heyday. But I think it's where Papa has me because the world is struggling so much Amen. with identity. They're struggling so much knowing him. The book of Galatians is about the gospel of grace. That's what it's there for. Paul's letter to the Galatians communicates an inflexibility to compromise the truth that salvation is by grace through faith. And Paul is, I guess the best way I can say it, he's tenacious as he formulates a masterpiece of statements that strip his audience, both then and now, of old-time religion. Old time religion will kill you. It will. It, it, it will just, it will tear you to pieces. So he is inflexible. In other words, he will not give any ground when he's penning Galatians here. Let me just cover the scripture. I'm closing here. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. What is he saying when he says, you foolish Galatians? He's saying, you emotional Galatians, you sensual Galatians. He's saying, you're operating by feelings, emotions, and dreams. That's what you're operating by. And I'm going to tell you today what the problem is with that. Here's the problem by operating by feelings, emotions, and dreams is your truth will change from day to day. What was true on Monday will no longer be true on Wednesday when you have a different emotion attached to it. And truth never changes. That's why Pilate would stand and look at Jesus and go, what is truth? This truth is so big, what is this? It never changes. Truth never changes. Facts will change. Truth never changes. See, it could be a fact that this guy holds the gold title for the fastest man in the world. You give him enough time, that fact will change. Give it enough time. But truth 
never changes. And that's why I tell people, you set your heart, you set your mind, you set all your constitution on the fact that Christ and his finished work is enough to get me to heaven. Christ is enough. Everything has been deposited on the inside of me for life and godliness. I don't need to reach in any direction. It's here. It came out of me in Nicaragua and healed a little blind girl. You see, if you operate by feelings and emotions, I'll tell you what happens. You'll be a wreck. You'll get derailed. Do you know there's times that I don't feel like going to work? Yet I go. There are times I don't feel like paying bills. I paid one this morning. There are times you just don't feel like doing this and that. But if you allow feelings and emotions to dictate your schedule and what you do and what you believe, I'm telling you, you'll be playing tennis by yourself and you'll wear yourself out. You hit the ball to you and you run over there real quick and you hit the ball back to you and you run back over here real quick. And it doesn't take very long, friends, because you're working two or three times as hard as you ought to be, and you will wear yourself out by operating by feelings and emotions. See, truth sets you at rest. He finished the work. I'm set at rest. He says, who has bewitched you? And I, of course, I've covered that. That means who has charmed you? Who has played the flute for you? And then he says something that's interesting. He says, before your very eyes... Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He's talking to an audience. Not a single one of them was at the base of the cross. But yet he's saying, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. So what he's doing there is he's saying, listen, when I came through the last time, oh, I spent day after day. I didn't want to do it, but I put my Savior back on the cross so that you could see him. And I got into blood and gore and guts and everything else. The Bible says he was so marred, he didn't even look like a human being. And he did it for you. He did it for me. And he said, I went through that. He said, I clearly portrayed him as crucified so that you could not only see this man on the cross. And when was he slain from the beginning of the world? He said, I put him on that cross, but I told you why he went to the cross. I told you because he wanted to give you his glory. He wanted to give you his goodness. He wanted to give you his love. He wanted to give you his grace. And you stared a hole through me and you believed every word I said. And now the Judaizers have come in. The Apostle Paul is not majoring in name-calling. Neither is he trying to throw the Galatians under the bus. The bus is already on them, friends. You say, how did they get under the bus? Well, the Judaizers threw them under the bus. They threw them into confusion with their wrong-headed message. The Judaizers' rhetoric and teachings were like confetti. Now, let me tell you something I know about confetti. I don't know a lot about confetti. But one thing I know about confetti is when it falls, it looks pretty. When it first comes, it looks beautiful, all kind of coming down through there, and you see all the, the rays of light hitting in all the different colors. There's something about confetti that draws our attention as it falls. It's pretty when it falls, but it always leaves a mess for someone else to clean up. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing when he's penning this letter to the Galatians. He is cleaning up the confetti that fell in the form of a counterfeit message 
from the Judaizers' mouths into the hearts of the Galatians. He is drawing the Galatians' attention by saying, Behold, a crucified Christ and to a covenant that is absolutely void of confetti and hoopla. Can you imagine how many spectators, parade spectators, have taken their eyes off the main event just because confetti was falling? I mean, you bring the soldiers home one time, parade them down New York City Street one time, and, and that's exactly how it happened. They were throwing confetti out of those skyscrapers. And when all of that is falling, you take your eyes off the main event, which are the soldiers themselves, the one who put their lives on the line, and you want to be drawn to confetti? That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. You foolish Galatians, you want to be drawn back to the law? You want to be drawn back to performance-centered Christianity? No! I clearly portrayed Christ as crucified. A groom would have to be out of his mind when the bride is walking down the aisle to decide that's a great time to take an assessment of who all came to the wedding today. No! His eyes are fastened on the bride. And her eyes are fastened to the groom. And that's all the enemy wants to do. He wants to come along and say, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that sparkly? No, my eyes are fastened to my groom. My eyes are fastened to my Jesus. My last scripture, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. What does he say in there? He's saying, you have taken your eyes off of the groom. That's all he's saying right there. He says, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, or the way we say it today, under the bus, and are trying to pervert the gospel of grace. The Apostle Paul is talking to the Galatians like a daddy would talk to his kids. You see, one of the roles of parenting is to go over something over and over and over and over again until they get it. You see, friends, I don't need the light on to tie my shoes. Why? Because I've tied them tens of thousands of times. Over and over and over again. Wow. In preparation for this message, I was put in remembrance of a man that lived near me in the 1980s. He was a first responder, and he was responding to a violent two-car accident. And when he arrived on the scene, those cars were so mangled, you wouldn't have been able to tell the make or the model of those cars. That first responder was also oblivious to the fact that his own teenage daughter lay lifeless in one of those vehicles. It wasn't until her daddy fastened his eyes on his own little girl did he discover all of her brokenness. Friends, there are times that we momentarily wreck our lives through bad choices. Sometimes it comes through religion, old covenant mindsets, whatever it may be. 
But I've come by today to tell you, your daddy knows who you are. Our identity in Christ remains the same no matter how broken we are. But we don't have to live there. How can that be? Because daddy in his goodness, daddy in his grace, daddy in all of his glory gave us the gospel in advance so that we would never be severed from him. Amen. Father, I want to praise you. I want to thank you. I want to thank you, Father. I know it was a long message, but it was a timely message. And I want to thank you, Father, that uh, this message will reach out to the shores of many nations, people that can identify with different components of the message. I want to thank you, Father, that you have the ability to change, change our water into wine, not just a cheap wine, but a choice wine a wine that's fit for the master of ceremonies to drink. I want to thank you, Father. I want to thank you that you don't need my contribution to do that, my contribution of time, my contribution of matter, my contribution of space. You have the ability because you have the authority. And Daddy, that same authority, that same power, that same privilege, that same ability lives on the inside of me. The Bible declares that you have given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. If we could just see ourselves when needs present themselves, whether they're for us or for someone else, that it's already on the inside of us. Then and then alone will it come out. I want to thank you, Father, that you are pulling our heart, in a sense, away from all the confetti all the things that would allure us, the confetti that falls here and there. And you're setting our eyes on our groom Jesus, the one who walked not only an aisle, but he walked a hill, Daddy, and he hung on an old rugged cross because he loved us. So I want to thank you for that, Father. I want to thank you, Father, that even in those areas of our lives where we feel broken, we feel broken, that our Papa looks at us and you still say, that one belongs to me. She is mine. He is mine. In Jesus' name, amen.